I think that the entire nuclear industry has essentially become collateral damage for the fight between renewable and uh, fossil advocates. And I don't know, that makes me sad. What do you think? I think that the <sighs> nuclear sector is going to have to proactively realign itself with renewables and with climate tech um, and, and unalign itself from fossil fuels in order to not be collateral damage. <laughs> I think it's in their control to get out of the crosshairs. I love it. Let's, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode. I've been working on it for a really long time. But actually, this is episode two of a three-part series. And so if you're just tuning into this one, uh, this is part of my kind of nuclear series or a discussion on nuclear. And so go back and listen to the introduction so you can understand what's going on. And then this episode will make a whole lot more sense. Uh, but for today and for this episode, I have with me Susie Baker. And we're going to be talking about kind of the progressive case for and against nuclear. Susie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jordan. I'm thrilled to be here. So before we dive into the fun stuff, the nuclear talk, tell us about yourself, Susie. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Oh, my. Well, um, right now I am living in Washington, D.C. Uh, with two small kids in the middle of a pandemic. And I, um, I run a couple of different really cool projects, uh, the first of which is the Fastest Path to Zero initiative at the University of Michigan. Um, and we are basically an interdisciplinary research group focused on clean energy adoption. So, um, you know, on the federal policy side, we're looking at deployment of, of technologies to stop climate change. And on the, the research side for us, we're looking at what do communities care about when they are adopting these technologies or opting not to adopt these technologies. Um, and so we're trying to sort of like figure out how to bridge that space in between um, deployment and adoption. <laughs> and so it's really interesting work in preparation for the energy transition. Um, and then my other hat is um, I recently launched a new NGO with um, my colleagues, Jessica Lovering and Rachel Slabaugh called Good Energy Collective, where we are working on progressive federal policy in support of the deployment of advanced nuclear technologies. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to take a holistic view of this issue of, um, getting clean energy to folks, um, fast enough to actually respond to the climate pr crisis, but without sacrificing, um, the needs and desires and inputs of communities. I love the work that you have been doing, and I don't actually know that much about the Good Energy Collective yet, but I am really excited to see where it goes. I think it's incredible that you're starting it. To go back a little bit, for me, when I actually first met you, uh, I first met you at one of the Fastest Path to Zero conferences. Yes. <laughs> and it was In Ann Arbor? Was it? Yes, okay. it, it was Ann Arbor, yep. Um, and it's one of my favorite uh, events because uh, a lot of people get into their technology spaces and they're very happy with like their technology. They love their pet project, like whether it's renewables or nuclear or fossil carbon capture. And Fastest Path to Zero is really just like, we just need to decarbonize. Let's get there. How do we get there? And if that involves some of something or none of something, like, it doesn't matter. The point is to decarbonize. So what's the fastest path? And it was so freeing, so lovely. Well, thank you. That's so nice. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the spirit of it is that we need to make sure we're measuring the right thing. Um, so the thing that matters most is cutting our emissions. Um, there are a million different ways that we could do that. And um, it could look really differently depending on what we choose. Uh, but uh, all of the best analysis on this, and I was just recently on a separate call with Jesse Jenkins, who's like one of the you know, leading energy systems researchers who basically has shown um, th that probably we're gonna need everything. <laughs> And not in a like all of the above sense of like, oh, yeah, like we still need fossil fuels, but we're going to need every zero carbon technology and things like direct air capture um, to actually save our climate. So there's no need to um, get really tribal about your favorite technology because there's just there's so much room um, that we we not only have room for everyone, but we absolutely need everyone 
um, to be working together towards the goal. I, I love this perspective so much of not being quite so in love with a particular technology. Today, of course, you're going to be talking about nuclear. So we're going to come back to that. We're going to circle back to the need or, or the, the use of nuclear. But before we come to there, I did want to ask, I've never asked this of you, you know, what makes you want to be involved in energy? Why do you think clean energy is so important to you that you are, you know, running around on multiple organizations, wearing multiple hats, trying to get this done? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Um, so I got really obsessed with climate change when I was in art school. Um, so my dad is a nuclear engineer and a, a true conservationist. He's like an outdoorsman and a kayaker and a canyon man. So I had a, a childhood that was like very in nature and um, and appreciating the environment. And then also, you know, having a nuclear engineer as a dad is like, you know, I got indoctrinated quite young that the technology was super cool. Um, and so I got to school. I didn't, I didn't go into energy and climate immediately. I went to art school um, and I was studying sculpture and public art. And I had like one requisite biology class and you know, we learned about climate change and it was already on my radar, but I got super concerned about um, microorganisms in the ocean and how ocean acidification was going to sort of wreck the base of our carbon system and our food chain. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, and now we understand this as like tipping points, right? But it, the realization that climate change isn't necessarily going to be this steady, predictable process. But in fact, we could cross some weird threshold at any time and be totally screwed and not realize that we've done it until much later when it's irreversible. Um, so I think I had this sense of sort of urgency around the number of unknown risks involved in the process. Um, and as an artist, I <laughs> was like basically a little science communicator. I, I started building these giant um, sculptures of ocean microorganisms as a way to have conversations about climate change. Um, so, you know, from there, I went and studied with an artist named Mel Chen, who um, he, he's, he's really an amazing, weird, lovely guy. And he actually was recognized with a MacArthur Award this year, which was like, really um, well deserved. Because uh, he has a spectacular mind and he believes that artists are not supposed to just be tucked away in a studio or in a gallery, but that we're supposed to be embedded in society and working with governments and scientists and, and that we are inherently problem solvers. And um, the best use of our creative skills is like doing real stuff and solving real problems. Um, so kind of like this passion for climate change combined with this new tool set that I got working with this um, with this renowned artist set me on this path in the nuclear sector because he basically made me believe that like if I thought nuclear is something that we could use to stop climate change but like for all of these different reasons we weren't that that was like an interesting enough project or or problem to kind of embed myself in it um, and so that's basically what I did. <laughs> I'm basically just a conceptual artist working on, <laughs> working on national policy now. I love it. I love it so, so, so much. It's such a good, ooh, it's such a good story. <laughs> I love it. Um, that is a, yeah, I, I do love your background. And I knew some of that, but that's really fun to get kind of in the full detail. Uh, so now that uh, we've heard a little bit about you, I want to dive into the, the topic of today's podcast which is essentially the progressive case for nuclear energy. And I want to outline it with just a couple things to like start and frame. As I said at the top, I think that nuclear energy in a large part has become collateral damage to uh, renewable and fossil advocates. And um, they both kind of seem to cite the love of nuclear energy when it's convenient for them to like push the other side out, but I'm not sure how much they actually love it. And uh, to me, that makes me sad. Going back to the fastest path to zero kind of conversation, I actually, too, am here to decarbonize. Like, if we could decarbonize tomorrow just with carbon capture, like, 
everything stays the same, but we just attach little widgets to every device that produces carbon from fossil, and we did it, that would be great. That would be awesome. I'm here for it. Same. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, wh whatever gets us there tomorrow, I am here for. But that means that I kind of come from the space of like, well, uh, actually, I have to evaluate what it was going to take to solve climate change. And to me, that comes down to three kind of key areas. And the first one is technology. And anytime you go to a conference, there's all these discussions of technology. And either we kind of, even we kind of veered into it to begin with, like, well, we need all sources. It's like, well, actually, you can decarbonize with any one source. It's just really expensive when you start picking and choosing which source is better for something than just like using the readily available technology. Um, but the other two kind of aspects of climate change are social unity and political leadership. And so when you go to these conferences on climate change, people love to talk about technology advances. But I find that the discussions of political leadership and social unity to be a bit more lacking. But they're, in my opinion, kind of equally prescient on this conversation. And so I kind of wanted to, to have this question with people who are in the progressive and conservative space, because I've been interviewing yourself and Rich Powell on this, and have a bit more of a discussion of the political leadership behind nuclear energy and clean energy working together. So let's pretend for like 30 seconds that Joe Biden, or, or as I would prefer, let's just be clear, Elizabeth Warren were president in January. <laughs> Blessed be her name. Um, I'm just, I just love Elizabeth Warren. So I still have uh, my sign up in my window. I, <laughs> it's really bad. Just love her so much. Uh, if, we're, if we're doing hi hypotheticals, let's pretend that uh, Elizabeth Warren is president in January. Um, and she names you to be not just her head of energy, but her energy czar. And you get to, you know, just go run wild with, with energy policy and design an energy system that meets these clean energy needs. Uh, in just a little bit of time, could you describe what that energy system look like, looks like and particularly what principles would guide as you kind of built this energy system or this energy policy framework to produce a clean energy system? Oh my gosh, Jordan, you should have given me a heads up so I could think about this. <laughs> This is a huge question. First, I would hire like a lot of smart people to help me because I, I certainly don't know exactly what the right answer is here. Um, but I think, I think I know with regard to sort of like guiding principles, one thing that I would definitely do really differently than has been done before um, is to build out the infrastructure nationally um, for communities to input into that process. So I'm not exactly sure what that would look like, but it would probably mean providing grants and resources and, you know, special liaisons across the nation to help facilitate conversations and planning and couple that with really rigorous sort of um, cross-cutting analysis at a very granular level of the whole country and understanding the different social, political, and economic conditions that different Americans are facing um, to try to play like a really savvy matchmaker kind of role. Um, so instead of dictating like who gets what, trying to figure out like who wants what and is that feasible? And if it's not feasible, what is feasible? And how do we get there? Um, this is like a huge debate right now in energy policy space, which is like <laughs> really big top-down federal programs like Green New Deal, um, who also are saying we need, and to be clear, I, I consider myself a Green New Dealer. Like I'm, I'm very much on board with that kind of an intervention. However, you know, in that same sort of cohort of thinkers, there's, there's a very clear demand and necessity for social and environmental justice to be centered and for frontline communities to be centered. So those are obviously intention, right? The idea that you're going to do this big top-down thing and the idea that you're going to center communities and let them lead. So um, that's like the thing I think about most of the time in my work is like, how do you do both of those things? Um, and yeah, so I think I have no idea what the energy system would look like <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, but my hope would be that the vast majority of communities were able to quickly decarbonize 
on terms that felt just and felt like they were driving the outcomes of the decision making. Thank you. And those type of principles, I think that's a really like lovely uh, guiding principle. The, the real question is I was looking for was for, you know, the principles that guide how you think about policies that affect people and energy. And I think that kind of community-based policy approach is something I've really heard a lot of in progressive circles. So I feel like you are the perfect person to have this conversation with. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry I didn't really answer your question. No, no, you did perfectly. <laughs> you did so good. Um, but rolling that up, you know, you founded or helped to found the Good Energy Collective. And that is specifically making the case for why nuclear energy and progressive policies align. And there are some people making the case for pro progressive policies, and there are some people making the case for nuclear energy, but that is not a large Venn diagram of overlapping. So I, I want to come back to this, you know, based upon the principles you just outlined, why should progressives champion nuclear? Um, at least in the in larger scale, nuclear as like fraught relationships with certain communities. Most communities that have a nuclear reactor in them now actually love them. They think they're very proud of them. Uh, but... Uh, you know, there are aspects of nuclear energy that don't always align with community values. So I guess from your perspective, why should progressives champion nuclear? So I'm going to not answer your question again. Um, I think that it is incumbent on the nuclear sector and nuclear experts and policy folks like myself to do the work to figure out how our technologies can align with progressive values versus putting the sort of ownership of like the progressive folks would need to just adopt nuclear full stop. Um, I think that we need to demonstrate the technology in a myriad of different ways that align with a myriad of different worldviews in order to demonstrate that lots of different folks can access this technology on their own terms. So like what that might look like is, um, community ownership models, for instance, and micro reactors, thing, technologies that allow for really different business models um, that are much more aligned with the way that different communities might want to live and work and exist um, versus just forcing big centralized energy systems on everyone. I mean, I think in reality, we're going to have to like double the grid to respond to, to climate change. And so like, we're probably going to end up in a situation where we're like beefing up our existing grid and then building sort of like islanded microgrids within it. And that actually like is a beautiful outcome with regard to like balancing these big <laughs> sort of national top down policies and smaller um, bottom-up community-driven approaches like that that maybe like both in policy and in technology there's room for both that's my hope uh, from what you said earlier there I'm quite intrigued because you said it in a way that makes me kind of rethink how I was gonna frame my next question you mentioned that it wasn't up to kind of uh, progressives to adopt nuclear but rather for nuclear to prove that it can embody progressive values yes. so I guess yeah, I guess you consider yourself a messenger more to the progressive community about nuclear or to the nuclear community about progressive policy, climate action. I'm a boundary object. I, I, I'm between the two communities and it is super lonely, as you mentioned about the Venn diagram that has like seven of us. Um, no, that's not fair. There, we, we found out when we launched, there are definitely dozens of <laughs> progressive nuclear experts, which is comforting. Um, but it is a small, it's a small community of people. And um, yeah, and, and in line with those sort of egalitarian values, I mean, I think we, we think of ourselves as connecting communities and connecting ideas um, versus like directional, like folk. We're, we're, we're working with both communities all the time. So now I really want to ask the question that I, I'm dying to ask. And the question is basically, uh, or not question, but rather to present to you what I have heard is the best case as to why progressives should not like nuclear. Um, and should not be in favor of nuclear. Yeah, so I too have a lot of friends who are both progressive and in the nuclear community. And they kind of have these very interesting internal conversations 
where they kind of are like, why don't environmentalists like nuclear more? That, that question seems to come up a lot. And they get these, I think, sometimes a little bit condescending uh, echo chambers where they say things to the effect of like, don't environmentalists know that nuclear is not emitting? And I'm like, I assure you, they do. And so then they try to go on these tangents of like, nuclear is safe, the waste is, can be stored and disposed of, nuclear programs cannot be turned into nuclear weapons programs. And what was interesting is as I kind of uh, switched employers and left that community and surrounded myself with people who are both environmentalists and heavily uh, in favor of renewables, that wasn't the, 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 the argument they were lodging as to why nuclear energy just isn't relevant. So I want to present to you what I think is basically the best case and the most compelling case I've heard about why nuclear energy uh, isn't important in a clean energy transition. And so when I ask people this, they don't bring up like Fukushima or nuclear waste. They say, listen, Jordan. Nuclear energy has been around for decades. It's expensive. Its advocates are not interested in partnering with the, the clean energy community unless it gets them some sort of tax credit or tax benefit. Uh, in the past five years alone, you've seen them sign on to legislation that would protect fossil fuel plants and gut renewable plans. And even when you look at some of the technologies they're talking about, like you mentioned, SMRs, microreactors, when you look at these other reactor designs, they're years out, hundreds of millions of dollars away from licensing. Um, you know, there's one uh, New Scale recently. Uh, I, I love the New Scale people. I think they're doing awesome work. New Scale recently got its reactor design licensed. It's not fully built or it's not fully uh, uh, proved. The NRC released their finally, final SER report, safety evaluation report. Um, and they're going to be building in 2024. And so, in terms of decarbonizing as quickly as possible, you know, we'll still be waiting come 2030, 2035 for those technologies to become available while we're fighting with the gigawatt scale reactors around policies that forward distributed and clean energy while they're kind of tying themselves to dirty energy like fossil. And so the thing about nuclear in these progressive eyes isn't that like nuclear is a flawed technology fundamentally. They don't cite Fukushima. It's that the nuclear industry isn't aligned with getting clean energy done and the glacial pace at which they move is inconsistent with clean energy goals. And particularly if you took all the money that's being spent on new reactor designs and just put it into off-the-shelf renewable-based technologies, you would decarbonize faster, even considering hard-to-decarbonize sections, than if you, you know, toyed around with all these other nuclear reactor designs that aren't even in the pike yet. Pike yet. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think that th those are legitimate critiques. I don't think that the nuclear sector has made, like, goodwill effort to join sort of the climate movement for lack of a better term and end or even just like to really go all in on even like moderate climate change policy stuff as a sector there has been a prolonged undervaluing of policy, of politics, and of coalitions. And so you've got like a sector that's predominantly engineers, right, with engineer minds, and it's not very transdisciplinary. And um, that results in a really sort of linear, linear and or hierarchical way of seeing the world and seeing different problems. And so, um, I think there have been a million missed opportunities. And I think there have been, you know, a million political cycles that had advanced reactor programs that got stood up and then shut down by the next administration. And it's taken a really long time for the sector to realize like, oh, we need to get savvy at politics so that we don't lose our, <laughs> our policy and funding every four or eight years or whatever. Um, so like just some of that stuff that um, I think other sectors are a lot more savvy about, I think that the nuclear sector struggles with. Um, so I think a lot of, the, I think a lot of those critiques are really valid. Um, and, and really the thing we're interested in doing as GEC is building coalitions and, and integrating nuclear into really smart, you know, big ambitious climate policies and, um, and trying to, sort of improve and and instead of like trying to sit down and have beers and convince your progressive buddies in Colorado that nuclear is good I'm like we're just gonna do the work we're just gonna show up and we're gonna work on the policies and we're gonna try to 
be a part of like these new coalitions that are emerging around climate change and just do the work. And I, I think that it's, it's very much not a PR or a perception issue. And that the thing that we want to focus on is changing the way that we do business, both in policy space and with regard to the technology itself and the way that it's deployed and adopted. Um, and, and then I think if we can do that, folks will see us differently because we will have been working really differently. Um, it's like at the end of a rom-com or whatever, when, you know, the girl comes downstairs <laughs> and you're like, oh, you are really different. Your hair's not a ponytail anymore or whatever. Um, so <laughs> it's just, you have to like do the thing, right? You can't just talk about doing the thing for 40 years and never do it. That is the first time I have heard nuclear industry, the nuclear industry <laughs> compared to a rom-com. <laughs> that is incredible. Oh, oh yeah, that's... I can't remember the last rom-com I watched. Um, so I'm trying to think of like a good like case study of like what a good rom-com would be to like uh, analogize the nuclear <laughs> industry. <laughs> it might have been a stretch too far. <laughs> no, no, I think it was, I think it was perfect. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would frame it more as like a Wes Anderson film, right? Lots of symmetric shots that result in like a single picture of how the world works, but uh, got it, I love it. I love it. Um, no, so I think it's it's really interesting because, uh, so I do not necessarily agree with every aspect of that critique, but I do agree really strongly with what you said that the nuclear industry has kind of been playing one type of game with, I think a lot of engineers, I am an engineer, we do it. We try to like out-engineer every problem that we don't like. And some problems can't be engineered, like public support for nuclear energy, uh, if it is a problem and we can talk about that a bit more because the, the phrase nuclear is cool again I think is the most uh, useless phrase in the world <laughs> like that's just make nuclear cool again I'm just like okay sorry calm down uh, <laughs> but uh, I in as much as it is public perception um, nuclear engineers try to like say like oh if we just engineer a better reactor we can solve this and I think you're right and I think it's interesting that you started this business that is, or not business, but organization around solving what appears to be the problem and it is providing a, a coalition around nuclear energy that is focused on environmental issues. That's it. You got it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like it, we can't just be mad forever that environmentalists don't like us if we're not ourselves environmentalists in the fight on the ground with the climate movement. And the climate movement is a very different animal than the traditional environmental movement. They don't have the same baggage. If you show up and you care and you do the work, that's good enough. Um, it's a totally different generation. And, and they are super pissed, understandably, that the world that they've been given is super broken and they have no future. And so, like, the stakes are so high that the bar is quite low. You don't have to be a perfect ally. You don't have to be aligned on every, every single issue. Um, you just have to show up and do the work. So as I mentioned, there is kind of a twin episode to this. Um, you haven't heard it yet, and it will be coming out in tandem with this, where I'm going to be talking to Rich Powell on the conservative side surrounding nuclear. But I want to push back a little bit on uh, this from the, from the viewpoint of a progressive. So this is not necessarily my viewpoint, but it is something I think you need to, you should be responsible as someone who is forwarding policy that is both progressive and in favor of nuclear, um, something you should be able to kind of at least discuss. And that is basically this, this idea around the nuclear industry writ large. So on the one hand, there is no individual actor that represents the entire nuclear industry. So I've talked to young nuclear engineers who love environmentalism, like, like you, they, they grew up loving the environment and being, being outdoors and all that. And then I've also seen on the news things like uh, Rick Perry's uh, notice of proposed rulemaking that tied nuclear energy to coal. And those people and that proposal don't represent each other. But on the other side, the new hand of it, the nuclear industry is really small. And so if someone had the passion of these young nuclear engineers and was in the room, they could have stopped those type of alignments. And they didn't. Which means there are enough people at the top of the nuclear industry who actually do view themselves as kind of not that interested in the climate question. And so again, going back to kind of where we started with this is, why should progressives care about nuclear? And I wanna, I wanna go back and just add a little bit more detail 
to this. So in September 2017, Rick Perry launched a uh, filed a notice of proposed rulemaking to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And this notice of proposed rulemaking was essentially to allow compensation for big gigawatt scale generators who could maintain over 90 days of fuel on site. Now, that is a technical definition to fit a problem rather than the other way around, because the only two generators that can hold more than 90 days of fuel on site are coal and nuclear, both of which Rick Perry supported just giving money to. And so many people in the nuclear industry who are at the top could have stopped this. Like, I have no idea, no doubt that there are people who own nuclear reactors who had Rick Perry's number who could have called this in and said, this is a bad look. We don't want to be tied to coal. But they didn't. Yeah. And this lends itself really to that argument that I was getting at is a lot of progressives that I work with say, I don't have a problem with the technology of nuclear, but nuclear only shows up to the climate fight when it thinks it can get the tax credit for being zero emissions. It's not here to do the kind of day to day labor of getting this stuff passed. So I don't have time for it. What do you say to them? I, I say I get it. And you're right. The the younger generation of nuclear engineers, not universally, but largely, are super cool, smart, progressive kids who have bright futures and are going to change the way that business gets done, I hope. However, like that sort of bottom up intergenerational change is not going to happen at the pace that we need it to, to actually get in the climate fight. Um, We need policy change because the folks in charge of the nuclear sector yeah, the, the, they are not going to probably get in, in the climate fight in the way that I think is necessary. Um, there, there are major generational divides that manifest in the nuclear sector, just like they do across, I think, everywhere. Um, it's a very conservative, old school sector. It functions more like the fossil fuel industry than... Um, than anything in the clean energy sector, right? Just like the way that it runs and decision-making and things like that. So <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't well, have a very good answer. No, Just and I think like, to, like, to like narrow it down to the exact point I'm getting at is, you know, you have a limited amount of time and we as a society have a limited amount of time to handle climate change. And whatever you decide as someone who is brilliant and who is doing these great things to spend your time on is an opportunity cost. Like you don't get that time back. And so I think the question that many progressives ask themselves isn't, is nuclear energy valid? It's just that, you know, they're not here for the climate change fight that we are here for. So I don't, my opportunity cost is I'm going to go focus on the technologies that actually have been here for the climate change fight for a long time. Right. I think that that's right. And I think we want to be a bridge. Again, I keep using this, but like we want to get into this fight and make it a lot easier for the next generation of young people to engage in progressive politics and in movement making and and incorporating nuclear technologies in ways that we can't even think of yet. Um, I think I think we want to very deliberately sort of break some of these cycles and bad habits of um, just sort of power replicating itself and business being done in the same ways, even though it is like so clearly maladapted for the moment. It's like, <laughs> at what point do you reassess when like, no, none of these plants can compete. We can't get anything commercialized. Like at some point you would think there would be like a aha moment, but, um, and maybe it is still coming, but um, yeah, it just seems like so very clear that the way things are being done right now is not very functional um, and, and certainly not sustainable. Right. Like, by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope we can start to bridge that and, and model different ways of thinking about these problems and different ways of engaging and coalition building and make it easier for other folks to do that. Um, that's the hope. I don't know if we can fix every problem, though. I don't want to overpromise here. <laughs> it's, it is a big, hairy, difficult problem, and there are two really different sort of worldviews at play. And that is real, right? Those are just perceptions. Like those are those are real obstacles. This is why I wanted to talk to you because you're we have we have so far had a productive conversation about nuclear's challenges, and we haven't talked about uranium waste yet. Like we just haven't. <laughs> it's so good. 
because uh, this coalition building space is, I think, where the where some of the problem lies, and that's why I think you're doing such good work with this. Thank you. I'm also excited to listen to what Rich has to say because Rich is a remarkably enlightened guy, and actually, I think we probably agree on more than we disagree on. Uh, well, you'll just have to you'll just have to wait. Hot, I'll have hot, to listen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I I do want to kind of like flip this though and have kind of one more kind of point to discuss on before we leave like this this topic and that is what to do about the other side and basically ask what is your your plan of attack um so i'm just going to quickly explain this from my point of view and then ask what your what your hope is so um one of the things i have noticed and something that i think people often often forget is there's usually more infighting among ideological groups than there is like people attacking them from the outside and what I mean by that is people who don't care about climate change probably don't have like a strong nuanced opinion about whether or not like 100% renewables or 100% clean energy is like the goal. Um, but people who do care about climate change, like that is the talking question, right? Like, or that is the talking point, right? It's like, well, where do you come down on like CCUS? And, and among these ideological groups, there's a lot of strong opinions. And with you, you are aiming to work with progressives. That is the the goal i'm guessing and if i were to if i were to describe the environmentalist camp i would slice it into two groups the the two groups that are within the environmentalist movement are what i kind of call the uh conservationists and the technophiles so uh conservationists are the are the environmentalists you usually kind of see on like bbc and stuff where they have this fundamental opinion that when humans interact with the environment in a way that is kind of quote unquote unnatural, they are destroying nature and nature is the ultimate thing to be protected. Um, and I think these environmentalists are really interesting and I, I love them. I'm not, I don't really consider myself one of them, but they basically have this kind of narrative that we should keep nature as is as much as possible. So the idea of a city is like horrible and like paving roads is bad. Um, now, it, it sometimes goes a little bit far in one direction to say that humanity is a plague, right? And so, like, we are the problem. We are the one acting out of bounds with nature. Now, on the other side of the environmentalist camp are who I call the technophiles. And they seem to fundamentally believe that human ingenuity leads us to an ability to harness energy for human well-being that should be uh, honored and championed. And we should do it with minimal environmental impact. We should have national parks and we should go, uh, you know, outdoors and do all these things but fundamentally our goal is to harness energy to mine and to burn and to uh utilize energy in a way that prote protects human welfare and these two camps are in hard disagreement about it and i think the technophiles of the environmentalist group really are the people who love nuclear energy they view it as a triumph of human achievement to be able to harness the atom in a way that pro provides clean and uh virtually abundant limitless energy is is essentially what nuclear is and then the environmentalists who are on the more the conservationist side that view uh, endless supplies of energy as the ability to continue to reshape the earth in after our own conveniences as like the ultimate evil. You have to work with these two camps. What is your strategy for working among these groups? I mean, so I think of these as more or less generational divides. I feel like the, the conservationists, I like, I like your definitions. I feel like that's very like, a boomer situation, right? Like, <laughs> oh, wow. Shade thrown. I mean, like, look at who holds those views and then just, like, map it um, by generation. And it is. It's, like, it's a very old-school lens for, for the environmentalist movement. That's, like, the origins of much of the environmentalist movement. And it's deeply tied to, um, you know, fighting nuclear testing and nuclear weapons and... And that's where a lot of the nuclear energy stuff, sort of the conflict around nuclear energy originated. Um, however, I feel like the, the Gen Xers became the technophiles, like almost in response to the shortcomings of the, of the conservationists, right? Like a lot of their critique is, is in response to these, these views. Um, and then millennials, <laughs> I'm a millennial, <laughs> technically. All I'm right, very, yeah, I'm let's do it. I'm a very old millennial. So I've had a lot of interface with the, with the technophiles. And, um, and I have 
my own sort of like experience of going, ah, there's still something missing here, much in the way that they did with their elders. It's just sort of like the natural progression. But I think <laughs> <laughs> like myself, millennials are largely like, you know, raising kids in mid-career. And I don't think have a very cohesive view on, on climate change other than it is real and we should be doing something. Um, and it's actually the Zoomers with whom I'm most blown away. Just like these kids who are like often teenagers or in their early 20s are just leading on climate in a way that is absolutely astounding and inspiring. And the reason that I'm like, okay, I can like work a little harder or like put a little more skin in the game because like these kids have everything at stake and my kids have everything at stake. And um, a lot of the sort of terms of the debate are still just really plastic. Um, we're entering, I mean, like, obviously we're living through like some weird times, like a lot of really bananas stuff has been going on for like years and now we're in a pandemic and, it's, and everything's on fire. And it's just like, it's very, crazy times. And I feel like that has led to this situation where there aren't necessarily like fully developed ideologies that are limiting the scope and scale of what's possible. It's mostly just like an army of young kids who are super pissed at everyone for not <laughs> dealing with this. And All it's right. just like, and it's, and that is also legitimate. Like they are right. And, um, not that I'm a lot older, but as someone slightly older, I'm like, the least I can do is be in that fight with you um, because you are right. And like these ideological fights of, of our predecessors, like I really don't care to rehash that kind of stuff for the rest of my career. Like I want to actually do the thing. I want to actually <laughs> stop the climate change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I, I see this sort of like, the subgroups that you see, but my experience of them has been um, largely generational, I think. <laughs> and I'm with the kids. I don't know what else to say. I think the kids are right. So, uh, so first, I love that, that explanation, but I do want to kind of like press on this a little bit. So with, uh, you know, my conversation with Rich, one of the things that people don't understand is that Republicans have a several point advantage in the Electoral College, meaning they can lose more of the votes, but still maintain political power. Yes. And at the end, at the end of the day, you want to pass policy, which means you need political power. Like that is, mm -hmm. you have to count the votes, you have to get there. And so what I'm kind of getting at is, um, so there have been multiple polls around Democrats' view of nuclear energy. And um, the majority of the time, Democrats either oppose or are not in favor of. It depends upon how you phrase the question. And, and I'll put a couple polls, poll links in the notes, show notes. Um, you have to work with these groups while getting policies passed that allow for nuclear energy to be built, to be built or, you know, preferably support it, right? Going back to that political leadership question is that uh, you have to have political leadership in order to get nuclear energy built. And you're trying to be in this space. So how are you going to get people who, whether it be generational or ideological, do not like nuclear, but love to, but want to stop climate change to move forward with your policies that would get nuclear built? So I think there's an important delineation between um, electoral politics, normal day-to-day -day politics, and policy. So my job largely is doing research to develop policies. And then some of my job is then doing some of the day-to-day -day politicking of figuring out who's in my coalition, who cares about this issue, who will help me, who can I help? And, um, and that's like the sort of normal day-to-day -day transactions of my life. Um, electoral politics is a whole different beast. And I think there are probably maybe a couple of hundred people across the country for whom nuclear is like their big deciding factor in their vote. <laughs> um, I think they are very few. I don't think that this is an issue that rises to the level of um, changing election outcomes, nor do I think it should be. Um, and subsequently, 
a lot of the work that I do could probably be best described as de-escalation. Um, I want to not have fights about nuclear power. I want nuclear to be able to be in the room or someone who has nuclear expertise to be in the room without it being a big conflict. I want nuclear to just sort of be included in a policy without it making headlines. Um, I don't think that this is the most important thing happening in the world. Well, I think the work you're doing is pretty important. So it seems it seems like it's a very big deal, but it is interesting to hear you phrase it in in kind of those 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 lanes of how you view nuclear in this overall context of climate change and energy. Uh, so now I want to move to the last section that I have for both you and for Rich, which I'm going to call Policy Corner for just a minute. Um, so I have spent a lot of time thinking about what I would do to try and get clean energy built as quickly as possible, particularly at the space between nuclear and renewable advocates. And so I kind of want to just do like a little little back and forth of like what you would do and then I'll share what I would do and then we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, so if you were to focus on like one particular piece of policy that you would think would be enable, you think would enable nuclear and renewable people to work together really well or would just be very good for clean energy, what would that be? Appropriations, just throw money <laughs> at it. I mean, that's not like typically a good answer to any given problem, but in this case, put some money towards building lots of nuclear renewable hybrid system demonstrations okay. or things like that, right? Um, I think if you fund it, they will work together. So uh, uh, tell me a little bit more about what you mean, though. Like, uh, I, I love money. Money is great. Most people, most people do. What would you, what would you put that money towards? Like a pilot plant, a order for the first company that can meet X number of units. Like, what would be, what would be the yes. point of that money? All of that. I think. <laughs> I think um, this bridge from sort of um, demonstration to commercialization, right? Like going from first of kind to nth of kind is really, really, really hard. And um, there are examples of the federal government doing this well, for instance, natural gas, right? Um, we have done this well with solar. Um, we have not been able to figure this out with nuclear. And I think um, particularly both with regard to nuclear renewable hybrid systems and even other interesting applications of nuclear that are like heat for industry or things like that. I think making dedicated um, sort of spending priorities for trying out a bunch of those types of projects and in even the second or third or fourth or fifth versions of them <laughs> would help a lot in the commercialization process. So can I share my little policy idea? Yes. Are yes, you ready yes. for this? Okay. So I, I, I have been asking myself both for your, your interview and for Rich's, what would be something that could, progressives could get behind that would solve this problem that we've kind of been, been discussing? And so here's what I've, I've decided upon. This is my policy recommendation for you um, to consider. And then I think we can just kind of dice through it. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. Um, oh, I'm so I, excited. Yeah. I have learned that nuclear and renewable energy advocates, they don't, they don't actually like each other that much. And I've spent a lot of time like working between the groups and I've kind of just realized that they're never going to like each other. Like you literally can't get more than like four of them in a room without one of them bringing up overnight capital costs and the other one bringing up capacity <laughs> factors, right? Like, and so I've started to ask myself, what policy mechanisms could I use that actually don't require these people to work together, but just like both do what they want to do and they could both just get behind. And that is transmission system. By basically any projection that you have a high penetration of renewable energy in the United States, the way you do that is a national grid. So when it's rainy in Oregon, you're piping solar energy from Arizona. When it's windy in Texas, you're piping that wind energy up to Pennsylvania. A national grid just gets the renewable job done in a reliable way. Very important to renewables. Nuclear energy, on the other hand, they keep like worrying about public opinion, you know, going back to that nu make nuclear cool again or Oh my or gosh, whatever. it's like an obsession. It's like really a lot. It's a lot. Yes. I have a secret. I have a secret. Build a transmission system, build the reactors in red states where they love you and sell the power in blue states and you're done. Like it, you don't need to ha handle that public opinion question at all. Like, Jordan, you are very aligned in my thinking about community <laughs> choice, though, right? Like, so let's say that red states love these things, build them, right? Like, and and I also love your your national grid idea. I I I love your whole 
idea. <laughs> Thank you so much. But no, uh, I want to like point point on this because I'm going to bring this up to Rich. You know, it's funny because like the nuclear people love to say, well, people don't like us. I was like, you know who people hate? Pipelines, natural gas pipelines. You know what Republican yeah. governors did? They made it illegal to protest natural gas pipelines. They did not. They did. <laughs> like yes. uh, North Dakota, uh, Kentucky, and there's one more state, West Virginia, just made it a straight up federal felony to protest natural gas pipelines. That is how natural gas solved it. Stop trying to be cool. Like it's, there you go. It's very simple. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I don't know. That is like my like suggestion on how to like make this work between the nuclear renewable people. Like stop trying to make them like love each other for like the various reasons. Just build a good transmission system and then like build where you want, kids. That's my, those I, are my thoughts. I love it. Conflict <laughs> management 101. It's brilliant. <laughs> that's what I got. All right. So I think that's kind of it for our, our, our beefy discussions, our meaty discussions. But I just kind of want to ask you, Susie, as a, as a kind of final question, where, what are you up to? What are, what are some of the next things you're focused on and what can we look forward to from your organizations? Oh my gosh. That's such a good question. So we are embarking on our first, now I'm, now I feel bad because I'm like, Oh, public perception, but we're embarking on our first, um, polling work to figure out, you know, how to think about and frame some of our policy work. I don't think it's going to be world saving work, but I think it'll be helpful to our team. Um, And, you know, mostly just at this point, trying to get through um, to January to find out what our future holds, or I guess really to November. Uh, The election is on my birthday. So, so my birthday is November 3rd. Um, it's actually also my childhood best friend's birthday. Uh, so it's a big one. And we're both turning 37. And all that I want for my birthday is for everyone to vote. Um, I think it's really hard to make big plans in and policy world um, with the number of unknowns that we're that we're dealing with right now. And so I think a lot is going to depend on the election outcome um, with regard to what tact we take uh, moving forward, whether we're getting stuff done or if we're going to be really fighting in the trenches for a few more years. Um, so, yeah, we, I think the future is TBD. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing all that you do. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Are you on Twitter? Where's your how do they how do they learn about what you're doing? Yeah, so I would say visit goodenergycollective.org. Um, we have a contact form and a volunteer form. And if folks want to reach out, that is definitely um, the best way to do it. Well, just once again, Susie Hobbs Baker, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today and laying out the progressive case for nuclear energy. I really appreciate it. Um, and with that, we'll go ahead and bring this episode of Colorado Energy Leaders to a close. As I mentioned, this is a three-part series that I've been working on for a while. Um, so go and listen to the other two parts. And as always, I'm at Colorado Roo on Twitter. And stay, stay, stay safe out there, everyone. <laughs>